Good afternoon. I'm Evan Smith. I'm the editor-in-chief and CEO of the Texas Tribune. I hope that you in this room are enjoying this year's festival half as much as I am. It is so great to be back at this again. And again, just amazingly gratified to see so many people here who care about Texas, who care about these big issues. As corny as it sounds, that is what the Tribune has wanted and has been about for all these years now. We want people to care enough to come to an event like this, talk to their friends and neighbors, talk to people they agree with and disagree with about the issues that matter because that's how Texas moves forward. Whatever your vision of the future is, it only happens if people of unlike mind get in a room together and talk. And so that's the basis for an event like this, and I'm elated to see so many of you record attendance at the festival this year, 50% more people here this year than last year, and you're all making an enormous difference in the state by being here. Thank you. It is, as I said, great to be back here again, and it is especially great to welcome back to the festival for the third year, all three years we've done this, we've had him here, our next distinguished keynote speaker. Steve Murdoch is the former Texas State demographer and the former director of the U.S. Census Bureau, appointed to those posts by Governor George W. Bush and President George W. Bush, respectively. His base of operations these days is Rice University, where he's the founding director of the Hobby Center for the Study of Texas, and where he holds the Allen and Gladys Klein Chair in Sociology. That is the formal and official version of his bio. Unofficially, he's a prophet, <laughs> the person to whom everyone turns to find out what the population of Texas will look like in 10 or 20 or 50 years, and by implication, how we need to respond. In 2005, Texas Monthly called him one of the 25 most influential people in the state, and that is surely no exaggeration. When Steve talks, the powers that be listen. Now, I'm going to introduce Steve here in a second, get him up on stage. He's going to do his presentation, and then he will take questions from the audience. So a couple words about the housekeeping part of this. There are microphones in the aisle. I've got to disappear partway through the panel. I won't be up here on stage anyway, but I cannot return to moderate Q&A. Don't need me for that. You all can ask questions, and Steve can answer from the podium. And ask good questions, please. We'll go left, right, left, right. Be respectful to one another and all that. Please turn your phones off. Speaking of respecting one another, turn them completely off. Some of you may be inclined to tweet, and if you do, turn your phone down to silent completely. Use the hashtag TribuneFest. Steve, do you have a Twitter feed? No. No. <laughs> Had to ask. Don't be so glad. Okay, well, hashtag TribuneFest. So questions from Steve. He'll go for about 30 or 35 and then take questions for the balance. Anyway, the presentation he's about to give, we joked beforehand that it's, it's a little bit too provocatively titled maybe for his, some colleagues of his to, to fully embrace. And I will confess, I'll cop to having pushed him to give us a sexy title, one that will get people here. And I'd say it worked. <laughs> Steve's provocatively titled presentation about the future population of the state is Texas in 2050, it's all over for the Anglos. Now, if you wouldn't come to see a presentation with that headline, I don't know what you would come to see. Please join me in welcoming my friend, the amazing Steve Murdoch. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you, Evan. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here, and I really appreciate that very nice introduction. I don't always get such nice introductions. Uh, I was to a small town in East Texas one time, and uh, the gentleman who was supposed to introduce me had gotten ill at the last moment, and so another gentleman, with just like two minutes before I'm supposed to go on, gets handed my introduction. And I look out of the corner of my eye, and I can see that there's something bothering him. And it's a word. And I know what that word is. It's demographer because it's not an everyday word. But time came. He had to introduce me. He got up and he said, you know, Dr. Murdoch does a lot of rural things. And he does a lot of dem, dem. Well, I guess he's best just seen as a rural demagoguer. <laughs> well, I'm going to try not to be a demagoguer today. But I do want to talk about population change and changes that I argue that are impacting Texas and the country in ways that are irreversible, and in ways that are changing Texas very basically, not only demographically, but socioeconomically. Well, let's start off by looking at population change. 
Uh, this is a slide I like to say that shows that in every period of time since Texas first allowed the U.S. to join it, we have grown more rapidly than the country as a whole. But you can see, as everyone's talked about that last decade, 20% uh, increase overall over twice as fast as the country as a whole. And our growth has been very clearly larger than everyone else. 4.3 million in 2000-2010, even though California is 12 million greater than we are, we had substantially greater population change. When you look at it in terms of the most recent period of time, again, greater growth than any other state. Now, I'm not showing you here today, but I do have to tell you that we didn't win for 2010 to 2012 the percent increase. That was done by the great state of North Dakota. And the only reason I bring that up is I am a native of the great state of North Dakota, and I never thought I'd live long enough to see North Dakota be the fastest growing state in any terms. Uh, when you look at our state, one of the important things to recognize this is our metropolitan areas. Our growth is not everywhere the same, and if you take those first five areas up there, generally 85% about of our total growth occurs in just those five uh, parts of Texas. And they're, you know, the Texas Triangle, basically. We talk about from Dallas-Fort Worth on down through Austin to San Antonio and on over to Houston, Galveston, etc. And then the Valley, particularly McAllen, Edinburgh, Mission areas. If you look at our growth, uh, in most recent growth, you continue to see that those areas, again, in this 2010 to 2012 period of time, have led our population growth. Despite the fact that we've had phenomenal growth, Texas, uh, like many other uh, states, has a part of it that's the Great Plains. And a friend of mine, a demographer I know, used to say that all of the things being the same, the Great Plains lose population. Okay? And you see that here. In the sense, you see the 2000-2010 period, we lost seven, 79 counties were having population decline. When you look at the 2010 to 12, it's 96 counties with population decline. They're primarily uh, in uh, West Texas, particularly Panhandle and West Texas, but we're seeing some states emerging that are having population decline uh, in East Texas, and that's somewhat new. Well. I argue that more important than growth in the total population is the change in the racial and ethnic composition of Texas. And let me just show you a couple of things here on this particular slide, and, and we'll try not to have all the slides be this complex, but if you look over under that percent of total population change, what you see is the proportion of all change in the state that occurred to each of the racial and ethnic groups. You see that it was 10.8% for non-Hispanic whites, or another way to put that, of all the growth from 2000 to 2010, 89% was due to minority populations, and 65% of the total growth was due uh, to the Hispanic population. I'll give you a little better graphical view of that. Notice, for example, that the 4.3 million was our total population change. If you look at Texas, one of the interesting things uh, is that this under-18 population and what's happening to it. Because although we had phenomenal growth, notice, for example, that we had an absolute decline in the number of non-Hispanic white children. And as we'll see, this isn't just a Texas phenomenon. It's a national uh, phenomenon. And so if we kind of look at it graphically, this shows numerically what was going on with total population growth in the state. Uh, those are in thousands, so we're talking about 2.791 million of the population growth of 4.2 million was due uh, to the Hispanic population. Uh, you can see non-Hispanic white population growth was about 464,000, and you can see the other population groups. If you look at the proportion of the growth then, there's that 65% of the growth uh, in the red there that was due to Hispanics. You can see that less than 11% that was due uh, to non-Hispanic whites, 12% to African Americans, about 9 uh, about 12% to Asians and others. If you look at children, well, this gets kind of contorted in terms of numbers, but you see there was decline for non-Hispanic white children. There was substantial growth for Hispanic children. And we look at proportional. Now, the, the numbers here have to add up to 100, taking into account the negative values, okay? Uh, and you can see uh, that the growth was overwhelmingly in terms of uh, Hispanic children. If you look at how growth was distributed in Texas, one of the things that's interesting to see is to simply do a simple map. 
And what you do in this map, or what have you done in this map, is the county had growth in this particular group, it was shaded in blue. If it had decline, it was shaded in red. Texas has 254 counties, and you see some counties, counties there kind of pinkish white. Those are ones that had less than 100 people of that particular group, and we think it's really not legitimate to talk about change. But of the 254 counties, of 252 counties, where there were enough non-Hispanic whites to count, you can see there was decline in about 160 of them. There was growth in about 90 of them. Now, remember, blue is growth, red is decline. This is the non-Hispanic white population, or as we call it, the Anglo population. This is the Hispanic population. 250 counties had enough Hispanics, so to speak, to count, and there was growth in 228. There was decline in 22. This is the African-American population, 102 declining, about 83 growing. Most of that growth is in the triangle with scattering other places. And you see some red counties there in East Texas. Those are old parts of the South that were, had African-American populations. We're seeing across the country that many of those rural areas with uh, African-American populations are having declines in population. This is the Asian population. Uh, lots of counties, of course, with too few to count but a lot of concentration in really three kinds of areas. The triangle, that is, the triangle being from Dallas-Fort Worth down through San Antonio to, to uh, I mean, down through Austin, San Antonio, and over to Houston, Galveston. And then two other characteristics tend to be prevalent where we see increases in, Hispanic, in Asian populations. One in areas that have large universities and areas that have large medical centers. We tend to see that across the state, in fact, across the country. Well, you know, this is Texas. Nobody's surprised that Texas is diverse. Everybody knows that Texas is a very diverse state. This is the United States of America, the whole country. And I want you to look up under that percent of total change again, and what do you see as a figure? 8.3%. It was 10.8% for Texas. This means that in the United States as a whole, not 89%, but 92% of all the growth in the United States was due to minority populations. 92%. And if we look at children, look at that numeric change. From 2000 to 2010, we had a net decline of 4.3 million non-Hispanic white children. We had an increase of 4.8 million Hispanic children. In fact, had it not been for the growth in the number of Hispanic children, we would have had one of the largest declines in the child population in U.S. history. Well, let's do the same thing we did a while ago, looking at areas, and we'll do blue for, for growth and red as decline. Let's look at the non-Hispanic white population or the Anglo population. Remember, blue is growth, red is decline. We have about 3,200 counties in the United States. You can see we had about 1,700 of them that had decline in non-Hispanic white populations, about 1,500 that had growth. Remember, blue is growth, red is decline. This was the Anglo population. This is the Hispanic population. So if you're one of those people that think that Hispanic population growth is one of those things that occurs in California, Texas, Florida, New York, and a few other areas, you are absolutely wrong. It has been very, very pervasive growth. Let's look at the African-American population. Nationwide, about two growing for each one declining. Lots of counties, particularly in the Great Plains, too few to really talk about. But notice the red across the south, in rural areas in particular across the south, because you had areas like Dallas-Fort Worth, you had areas like Atlanta with large increases in the number of African-American population. And this is the Hispanic population. Again, about uh, 16 growing to each one declining in terms of the country as a whole. Well... Let's kind of look, we'll just do this very graphically. This is total population change, and we're looking here at percentages or proportions of growth. This is Austin Round Rock. Austin is, of course, uh, the most non-Hispanic white of our major metropolitan areas, and we'll just look at four for today. But you see, even there, 45% of all the growth in the total population was due to the Hispanic population. About 39% was due to non-Hispanic whites, and about 12% to Asians and 5% to African Americans. Uh, if you look at the child population, however, notice that about 65% of all the growth in the child population in the Austin MSA. Now, keep in mind, this is not the city of Austin. This is the MSA. So this includes Round Rock. It includes all the way down to San Marcos. Uh, 
about 65% of all the growth in children uh, was due to the Hispanic population. This is Dallas-Fort Worth, total population, 14% basically due to non-Hispanic whites, 52% due to Hispanics. You can see the numbers yourself. And this is children. There was a net decline in the number of non-Hispanic white children in the Dallas-Fort Worth MSA, an overwhelming majority of the increase, as you can see in the red bar there, uh, was due to Hispanic children. Oh, this is the Houston. Only 7% of the growth of the entire population of that area was due to non-Hispanic whites. On the other hand, 61% basically of the growth was due to the Hispanic population, 17% to the African-American population, about 15% to the Asian population. And this is the child population. Very large decrease in the proportion, if you will, of, uh, of non-Hispanic white children uh, and a huge increase in the number of Hispanic children. San Antonio, well, about 69% of the growth was due to uh, Hispanics, uh, about 18%, in fact, due to non-Hispanic whites. What's kind of interesting there is the amount of that growth that occurred in this area that we often identify as very Hispanic for non-Hispanic whites was about the same for children. In fact, We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, and this is the proportion of children. They had a small decline in the proportion of non-Hispanic white children, etc. What that's meant, if you just kind of compare these bars as we go down, this is what's happened to the non-Hispanic white population. In every one of those major MSAs, the proportion has declined. In two of them now, in terms of the, the non-white population, it's below 50%. For a third one, Dallas, it's very close to going below 50%. If you look at it in terms of non-Hispanic white children, what you see is that as of 2010, it was below 50% for all four MSAs. This uh, is the uh, population in terms of looking at the Hispanic population growth. In this case, you can see the red is taller than the blue all the way across. San Antonio, of course, is over 50% in Hispanic, but we're seeing that growth for the total population and look at it for the child population. We're coming in, getting close for three of the four of being, uh, having a majority of their children being uh, Hispanic. Well, who cares about these dull old demographic characteristics anyway? Why do we care how many people there are, or what their characteristics are, or how old they are in the sense of whether they're children or not? Well, I argue we should care because due to a variety of historical, discriminatory, and other factors, these demographic characteristics are tied to socioeconomic characteristics. They are tied to the resources that people have to buy goods and services in the private sector. They are tied to the resources that people have to pay taxes in the public sector. And as we change our population, if we do not change the socioeconomic factors that go with them, we will change the very economic base of Texas. And as we'll see in the, as we get into the future, into the United States as a whole. Now, I want to show you a whole bunch of data here, which I'm always accused of that. A friend of mine says, you know what I like about you, Murdoch, is you take about 600 numbers, put them on a slide, put them up in front of a bunch of people, and you say, as you can plainly see. <laughs> well, this is one of those. But I really only want you to look at a couple different things here. And that is, I want you to look at that set of percentages, which is the percent of people in poverty. This is the United States. And if you look under 2010, you see, for example, that figure for non-Hispanic whites was 10.8%. For Hispanics, it was 24.8%. For African Americans, 27.1%. For Asians, 12.4%. The total was about 15.3%. You might notice something else. These are in 2,000 constant dollars or 90, 99 constant dollars. In every single racial and ethnic group, there were real declines. The average American household was poorer in 2010 than it was in 1999. But notice that if you look at poverty, it tends to be a rate of about two to three times poverty rates, that is, for Hispanics and African Americans relative to non-Hispanic whites. Well, we're going to run through a whole set of these. Let's see how much difference we see. Well, this is the United States. This is Texas, about two to three, three to sometimes almost four to one. And you can look either 99 or 2010, but look at 2010. We're talking about, you know, about, uh, as again, two to three times as much poverty for Hispanic and African American as we see for non-Hispanic white households. This is the Austin Round Rock MSA, 
about the same kind of pattern. In 99, it was about 2 to 1. Uh, now it's 3 to 1 uh, in the most recent data. This is Dallas-Fort Worth, 2 to 3 to 4 to 1 in both periods of time. Houston-Galveston, 3 to 4 uh, times as high a poverty for uh, Hispanics and, non and African Americans as it is for non-Hispanic whites. And this is San Antonio, similar kind of pattern in about 3 to 1 uh, basis. Well, let's look at education, and I'm going to make this very simple. We're going to look just at one figure. And this is the percent of Hispanics with less than a high school level of education. And this one is going to be U.S. and Texas. You can see about 38% in the U.S., about 40% of Hispanics in Texas had less than a high school level of education. But the next ones we're going to see metropolitan areas, but we're going to see metropolitan areas and the central city of each of those. So here we are with Austin, about 35%, about 39% in the city of Austin. Uh, this is the Dallas-Fort Worth. You can see that's about 46%. And in the city of Dallas, the percent of Hispanics with less than a high school degree in 2010 was 56%. If you look at Texas, I mean at, at, at Houston, Look at the city, about 51%. Now, here's the interesting part. This is the lowest one we've seen. And people often ask me, why is that? Well, this is because, I think, in large part, we know that populations do well over time as they assimilate and as they get integrated into society. And as you probably know, Hispanics have been in San Antonio as long as any of the Anglos. And this is one of the indications... Huh? Longer, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely right. I remember very well, the first time I ever drove in San Antonio, I was driving, and hadn't been in the state more than about six months. And I was driving on I-10, and, and I came to this first street, and it said Fredericksburg. Well, I said, huh, guess this must be a German city. Next thing, I'm driving along, and I see De Zavala, Okay. Well, that's because it has got a combined kind of heritage, although the, certainly the first heritage was Hispanic. Uh, but you see that Hispanics do better, and because they're multi-generational and into the economy, etc., uh, in San Antonio, and in parts, uh, which we don't have for time, show in the valley. One of the things about the valley data I was looking at for a, group, for a banking group that we did a presentation for is there has been some substantial increases in socioeconomic factors in many parts of the valley in the last decade. Well, what about the future? This is the United States, and everything is in thousands, so that 420 over there is 420 million people that we expect the U.S. to have by uh, 2060. This is their most recent projections. Uh, and if you look at that numerically, what they're projecting is that we're going to have a decline, as you can see, of about 18 million non-Hispanic whites during that period of time. Increase of about 17.6 million African Americans, about 19 million Asians, about 15 million others, American Indians, two or more races, etc., and 78.3 million Hispanics. Now, you know, I had somebody do a chart for me that's a pie chart to show proportions, and they brought this in to me. I said, what in the world have you done? I said, that you've got non-Hispanic white up there, and notice what part of the pie they have. Zero, because they're declining. So when you're talking about proportion of growth, they don't have any of it. This is the U.S. as a whole. 61% is Hispanic. 14% is Asian. 14% is African American. Another 11% is other uh, racial and ethnic groups. And if you look at our population, one of the interesting things, you notice that 65 and over? You know, I like to tell my students who all look at me and think I'm ancient, Right? I said, remember when you look at the demographics, there's going to be a lot of us. And this chart shows that because when you look at 65 plus, 13% in 2010, 2060, 22% of the population will be 65 years of age or older. Here I'd like you to just look at that white alone column. That's 2010. And notice that in every age group, every age group in 2010, non-Hispanic whites are over 50% of the total everyone in that first column under white alone. If you look at 2060, there's only one age group in which non-Hispanic whites 
are over 50%, and that is 65 years of age or older. Well, what about Texas? These are some projections we did in conjunction uh, with the state demographer's office at UTSA, where I used to be. Uh, and when you look at this, we're projecting about 55 million people in Texas under that uh, bottom scenario, which most people think it may be something between that and the one above it, but we'll go with the bottom one for right now. And when you look at that growth, one of the interesting things to note here is under the two bottom scenarios, which and they're differentiated by the amount of, of migration, you can see that Hispanics become over or come 50% or more of the population by 2040. But even in the scenario in which there's no migration, all of the growth is due uh, to natural increase, the excess of births over deaths, even under that scenario, by 2050, over half of the population is Hispanic. Now, notice what happens under that bottom scenario to the, to the non-Hispanic white population. It's down to 22%, basically, from 45% that it was in 2010. Remember, we were a state that in about 2003 to 2004 became less than half 50%, less than 50% non-Hispanic white. We became one of four majority-minority states. Well... This is a chart. I want you to look at just at the bottom 65 plus. And this is a case where we're looking at a chart and we're saying how, what proportion of the population in each of those racial ethnic groups would be 65 plus. Now this is important compared, when I'm going to compare it to the next chart for a good reason. Notice that non-Hispanic whites would have the largest proportion of their population that was 65 plus. 28% basically. 27.7%. Compared to only 12.9% of Hispanics. But because Hispanics are going to be such a large portion of the population, if instead of looking at it in terms of up and down, if you look at it sideways, meaning of all the people that are 65, what proportion are going to be in each of the racial and ethnic groups? The largest proportion of the elderly will be Hispanic, 42.5% uh, in that 2050 uh, time frame. Well, up here we have a chart that shows a percent of people 65 years of age or older. And the blue up there is the percent of the population, or is 20% or more of the population 65 plus. You've probably heard people say, one in five Americans will be 65 years of age or older. You know, they say it like it's a plague that's going to hit. You know? <laughs> but I like to tell my students, because students, I'm getting to that age of students look at me and they say, God, how old can he be, you know? <laughs> and then if I start talking about childhood memories, it really gets bad. Okay. You know, you say things like, I remember such and such, and they say, oh, yeah, my grandfather remembered that. Okay. <laughs> but notice then, therefore, the blue is that number. This is 2010, and this is, again, blue is 20% or more in 2050. Now, there are places you can live. You live in Jefferson County or Gaines or Gray up there, or a big popular one for a lot of people here, a lot of UT students would be living in Brazos County in College Station. <laughs> you can live there and not live with us old folks. Okay, so we're going to have a bunch of pervasive patterns. Well, we've looked at a lot of demographics, we've looked at a lot of socioeconomics. And people know that I always dwell on the issues of how we close the gaps between minority and majority populations, and I pick on education. Now, why do I pick on education? I pick on education because education is the single best predictor of how one does socioeconomically. Absolutely nothing that does better as a single factor. Now, it doesn't mean all circumstances, etc., but... In general, you can bet on education. And there's a couple reasons here. This is a chart from 2011 it's for the U.S. as a whole. And as you remember, 2011, we weren't exactly totally out of the most recent economic crisis. But that line on the left there, that dotted line, is the unemployment rate. Notice that it's 7.6%. Notice that if you had an associate degree or higher, you were less likely to be employed than the average American that was unemployed, right? In other words, those are all, all lower unemployment rates. And you might, you might get your attention 
Over there, if you have a professional degree, on the right-hand side where that dotted line is the median weekly earnings, okay, notice uh, that you're going to make about four times as much if you have a professional degree as if you have less than a high school level of education. Education pays. But a lot of people say, well, yes, it pays, but does it pay for everybody? Well, this is one of those charts that only a demographer could love with all the numbers. But what I want you to do is to take almost any line you want. You can see we got non-Hispanic whites, we got African Americans, we got Hispanics, we got uh, Asians and others. And education runs from less to greater amounts of education across the top. Notice that even as a laborer, you make more money if you have a higher level of education. And it's true for all racial and ethnic groups. Now, sometimes there's a little jog if you go from one to another. And there are differences, certainly differences, between racial and ethnic groups. Have to do with how long you've been in the higher status occupations, you know, how much money you might have inherited, which is more likely if you've been in, in households that have, have been at higher levels of education longer. But as you look at this, you can see that education generally pays. And let's look at this a little more detailed, although I'm not sure how much easier it is. Here what we're simply showing is for managerial and professional populations, and you can see the different racial and ethnic groups, and there are a few cases where as we go from less than high school to high school, there's a decline. But in general, you see what we talked about before. As education goes up, uh, so you do better, and this, of course, is managerial and professional occupations. Well, if we look at operatives and laborers, again, there's a few hiccups more, meaning there's some that there's a decline from left to right. But in general, very clearly, education pays even if you're not at the top of that occupational structure. Well, and what have we done on education? Well, this is a chart, of course. This doesn't take into account the last session where we did certainly address some of these issues. Uh, but if you look at that right-handmost column, that is the percent increase or change in per-student general revenue expenditures. We increased it for elementary and secondary by 3% over 10 years. Okay? So if you start figuring out how much increase you'd have to have to exceed that 3% in real terms and meaning if in real expenses, it doesn't take very much. But for those of you that are in colleges and universities, you probably see that bottom figure where the actual change was a minus 28%. Now, if you wonder why your college and university sends you six letters every year asking for donations, it might be because of that minus 28%. Interesting, Texas isn't different. The national average was minus 28% for colleges and universities across the country. Well, let's look at some projections we've made in uh, what's coming out, our new book, which I have flyers for you called Changing Texas, Implications of Addressing or Ignoring the Texas Challenge. Uh, what you see here is if you look at all public education, so this is elementary and secondary as well as colleges and universities, we're seeing about a 5.6 million increase in the number in those education levels. Elementary and secondary, uh, you can see, goes up uh, about 5.3 million. If you look at the percentages, however, notice that Hispanics will be the dominant group. Uh, Non-Hispanic whites go down uh, in elementary and secondary down to about 15% of the total. And I do want you to remember that 64% there for Hispanics in 2050 for elementary and secondary schools. Uh, this is public colleges, community colleges, okay? Uh, you can see we expect substantial increase when you look at the total from 746,000 to 1.4 million in that right-hand most column uh, for community colleges. Somewhat less growth in, in public universities. About 1.1 million increase in the number of college students overall over the next 40 years. And notice one thing, however, under public universities, notice the 2050 figure is 44%. What was that other figure? 60%. 
The difference isn't because of population change. It's because we're not getting kids through into the university setting and getting them to that particular point. We're just not getting them there. Now, let's look what this means. Now, remember the total population growth rate is 119%. So we're expecting because of the birth rate declining and so forth uh, that we're going to have less growth than the population, but you can see what the growth is going to be. But then let's look at something else. This is expenditures. Under that expenditures before the last bills, we were talking about $3.2 billion, which would, decrease, would have decreased us even further in terms of those proportional rates, but we changed some of that after this period of time. But I want you to look at this, because one of the things that worries me the most about higher education is financial aid. Financial aid per student has never been as high as it is right now. And you'll notice uh, this is the number of kids. You look at the bottom line there, we expect the number of kids with, with unmet financial need to go from 687,000 to 1.4 million kids. And a majority of those kids are going to be minority kids. You can look here and see that. Now, what do we have here? In the left-hand chart is the growth in the number. On the right-hand chart in each case is the growth in unmet need. 112, 13% for kids in community colleges, 94% for universities. Put them all together, 104% increase in unmet need, 87% increase in enrollment. It means we're going to have a very rapid increase in kids who need financial assistance. Well, what does this mean overall? Let's look at this a little bit more. We looked at the data and said, okay, what does this mean when if everybody changes in terms of demographically the way we expect it to, and they continue to have the socioeconomic differences that they've had in the past? This is a chart that shows households, and you see that 127.6%, and you can take all these areas on the bottom, and if, you know, everybody was moving along at the same level as population change, all those bars would be at the level of the top of that gray bar. Anything that's below there, because of our demographic change and the socioeconomic differences and racial and ethnic groups and other things, mean that we're getting poorer in those areas. If you look at that chart, what is the only thing that's going to exceed our growth? Poverty. In fact, for average household income, for net worth, there's an absolute decline in those two factors if we don't change the socioeconomics that go with the demographics. Well, in this case, what we've done is say, okay, let's look at what the potential for closure is. The left-hand side is the current or 2010 value in terms of a per capita income. The right one there, the red, is if we do nothing and we have uh, the, the demographic and so changes we have and the socioeconomic uh, uh, differences remain as you can see. You see that we'd have an average income decline of $3,000. If we do an average rate of closure, we bring that up to a meaning for those three last decades from 80 to 90, 90 to 2000, 2000, 2010, of 34, up to 34,000. But if we could close the gaps, instead of having a per capita income of 21,000, we could have a per capita income of 48,500. Close the educational gaps. This is mean household income. See the same kind of pattern. Notice we close those gaps, not 58,000 but $132,000 in terms of average household income. Uh, this is percent of people in the labor force, managerial, and in operative and laborative. And if you look at the second bar in each one, that's operatives and laborers, and you can see that goes down. And that goes down is a good thing, because it means more people are getting into managerial and, oper and, and uh, professional occupations that make more money. And so we could go from 27 where we were in 2010 up to 46 and a half, almost 47% of people being in managerial and professional occupations. Uh, and this is the percent of all people in poverty. We were about 17.8%. We closure, we get down to about 20.3. But if we had total closure, 
17.8 down to 11.9. Educational attainment, again, goes way up. Uh, if you look at graduate or professional degrees, we could go from having 8.6% of the population graduate professional degrees to 16.1% if we would close uh, some of those gaps. Well, let's look at just aggregate things. We've just got a couple slides left here. These are in billions of dollars, so we're talking about trillions of dollars. A aggregate household income could go from the $592 million billion that it was in, uh, in 2010 with complete closure to $2.7 billion by 2050. This is aggregate consumer expenditures. You know, from $915 billion that it would be if nothing happens in that red bar, up to $1.8 trillion under complete closure. And state tax revenues could also do pretty well, going up to $148 billion per year with full closure. <laughs> I had to show you this. I knew that many of you were deeply moved. Well, what do I think this means? Well, let me say a little bit about the title and the reason the title, uh, where, where Evans wanted a little flashier title. But the reason that came up is that, interestingly, if you look at our population today, whether you look at Texas or the U.S., there are really two populations in the United States of America and in Texas. One is an aging, literally off the end of the life chart set of non-Hispanic whites. Non-Hispanic white fertility, you know, population grow by two mechanisms. Natural increase, the excess of births over deaths, or through migration. And migra when you're looking at a state, it can be migration from other states or migration from other countries. Non-Hispanic whites fertility has been below replacement for almost 25 years. The average non-Hispanic white woman in the United States and Texas is 42 years of age. So if we're going to have a whole bunch more babies, we'd better get at it. <laughs> now, I have a very good colleague at Rice. He says, when you tell people about this, just point out that I am willing to help in any way that I can. <laughs> And so we're not likely to come back as a result of natural increase. In fact, most parts of the country now and in the country as a whole, non-Hispanic whites are in natural decrease. There's more dying than are being born. But what about, particularly if you look at the country, immigration? Where would immigrants have to come from? They'd have to come from, if you want to look like people like me, you have to come from Europe. And Europe is the oldest, slowest-growing major region of the world and the only major region of the world that is projected to have fewer people in 2050 than it did in 2000. Now, the other population is a minority population, and since it's the largest, let's talk about Hispanics. The average Hispanic woman in the United States and in Texas is 28 years of age. There's a lot of childbearing years between 28 and 42. And although it's been declining, Hispanic fertility is still above replacement fertility. In fact, the, the, the uh, Census Bureau projects that even through 2050, the Hispanic population will be above replacement levels of fertility. And although there's been declines in immigration, uh, there's still immigration. And in fact, a report that came out just Two days ago, from Jeff Passell from the Pew Hispanic Center, says he thinks that immigration is beginning to pick up as a result of the economy picking up. So why do we care about this? I think the argue, or at least I argue why we should care, is that the reality of it is that the future of Texas, the future of the United States is tied to minority populations. And how well they do is how well Texas and how well the United States 
of America will do. Well, a lot longer ago than I like to think about it now when I first got involved in this demographic game, I had a fellow graduate student come up to me and he said, you know, I feel sorry for you. I said, well, except for the physical appearance and the intellect, why do you feel sorry for me? He said, I feel sorry for you because he says, you know, you're a demographer and all the interesting, important, exciting things are over. He said, world population growth rates have begun to decline. He says, the baby boom is over. He said, what is it you're going to do that's going to keep you busy for the rest of your career? And I argued, with keep, that, I argued that keeping track of these and other demographic trends would, and it has kept me busy for the rest of my career, and I hope will continue for the rest of my career. But I argued with him, and I would argue with you as well, that demographics is not best left to demographers. If we don't take into account these and other demographic trends as we plan for the future of our communities, as we plan for the future of this country, and certainly as we plan for the future of Texas, I think we'll be much less successful than if we do take them into account. Thank you. Question. Have some time for some questions. Yes, we'll rotate back and forth. You, uh, the ladies first here. Okay. Thanks, Steve. Deborah Danberg. Yeah. Um, I know that you, uh, while you didn't mention it, I know that you have run the numbers on, uh, on uh, voter participation by racial group or ethnic group, and I would like for you to share your insight on that, please. And secondly, um, these, these charts and these facts are enough to make the blood run cold in the veins of some you know, Tea Party type folks, I'm sure. And their solution seems to be to close down the borders from immigration. And I just wanted to note that the Hispanic growth that you were talking about are all born in the United States and therefore they are citizens. And how much difference in any of these numbers would be made if we in fact had zero immigration? Well, uh, I think the first question you asked was in terms of voter, and I don't have the, all the data at the top of my head. I think one of the things we note, however, that one of the reasons why you look at the percentages of Hispanics uh, and you don't see the same percentage of them as registered voters is historically, and I think we're, there's changes taking place in this, but historically, uh, Hispanics were about high, half as likely to register and about half as likely to vote. Now, we're seeing some changes in that. And certainly we still have, and this isn't because of un, all because of undocumented immigrants, we have citizenship issues. They're also less likely to be citizens. As those things change over time, uh, certainly we're going to see uh, them become an increasingly important part of the electorate I think that's, that's already happening, and particularly happening in some parts of, of, uh, of Texas. Um, your second question was? Uh, if we went to zero immigration, oh. what Well, it would make some difference, yes. We would still see a lot of these patterns could occur, uh, but immigration is part of what we're seeing in terms of growth. But we still, uh, because we, we're not expecting a big influx of of uh, non-Hispanic white immigrants, we'd still see, uh, well, we're a majority and minority now, and we would see increases in those, uh, particularly for, uh, but for Asians and for Hispanics, it would be a slower rate of growth than in the past. Yes, sir. Thank you for your presentation. I had uh, two factors that as you look ahead 35 years, I wondered if you could address. Uh, the first one is historically in Texas, we used to speak of the German population, the Czech population, uh, and other ethnic groups, which are now rolled into the non-Hispanic white category, mm -hmm. partly because of something called intermarriage. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, as you project ahead 35 years, what impact you believe intermarriage will have on the classification of Hispanic? And secondly, to what extent do you project that 35 years from now, those who are today calling themselves Hispanics will still regard themselves as a separate minority, or their children and grandchildren will, 35 years from now? Well, I get asked this question a lot. I think that we know there will be intermarriage. Um, I think, you know, uh, Census Bureau, although I didn't have anything to do with this particular decision, didn't get around to uh, being too smart about some of these issues, uh, until 2000, in 1990, 
uh, we still required you to be from only one racial or ethnic group. So you could not be Hispanic uh, and African American, for example. Uh, we changed that. Uh, when you found, when you looked at two or more races, that category was about 5 or 6% of the total. Uh, we had a lot of people in 2000, that was in 2000. 2010, we had a lot of people say, oh, it's going to be 15, 20%. In fact, the former director of the Census Bureau, when I was director, called me up and said, Steve, you better get ready, because I'm telling you it's going to be at least 14%. It was about 7%. Okay, now, I'm not saying that's an accurate necessarily, but what do we, how do we get that data? Demographers don't go out and count noses or check things. They let people decide what they want to be. Uh, and for some groups, we also know a lot of what we've talked about here, and that is change in socioeconomic status is important for identification and for other factors and in terms of intermarriage. Uh, I would say that if you were to look at most people that self-identify as Hispanic 30 years ago, and we had gone back and transported them to now, they would still say they were Hispanic and vice versa. So I think the real answer is we don't know for sure. Uh, but I'm pretty skeptical of what sometimes people kind of say is intermarriage will take care of all of it. Well, it's not intermarriage. It's not, that's the issue. It, the issue is the differential really in the socioeconomic resources. Uh, and And... I don't know anything that shows that there's a significant improvement if, if we have an X marry a Y. In fact, I do, we did do one study on this. Um, there was a board of regents, and I remember, and I won't say what university, that said exactly that. He said, well, don't worry about that because intermarriage is going to take care of it. And he says, you know, Anglo is going to marry a bunch of poor, poor minorities, and, you know, it'll take care of it. Well, we had data from a uh, public use microdata sample, and we went and checked that. And you know, the interesting thing was, for example, it wasn't the white PhD that married the black high school graduate. It was the opposite. It was the minority that was marrying down in terms of educational status. Now, some people you know, wonder about that, but... That continues to be, in all the data I've seen, the reality, okay? So to an extent that that will raise up, it's going to raise up the poor Anglo, not the poor minority, in terms of socioeconomic status. But fairness to your question, we don't know exactly what that will be. We certainly know uh, that, you know, uh, about the only thing that's Irish in me is my square face and my last name. You know, I'm more German and Norwegian and, you know, everything. Uh, but but uh, we don't know exactly the answer to that. But it isn't as simple as, as we sometimes think. Uh, yes, sir, and then we'll come back here. And welcome back to the Austin MSA. Um, as Austin shifts to a minority-majority city, we also see the African-American populations dropping down to about 7 and change uh, from its traditional uh, percentage of 9%, and the Asian-American community rising dramatically. Uh, I think it's 4.9% now. Uh, Angelou Angelus, a local predictor, a demographer, has said we will see uh, the shift of, between African-American and Asian-Americans within the next decade or two. What are you to make of that? Well, I mean... What's happened, of course, in terms of African-American populations has been the fact that uh, there's not a substantial amount of immigration from Africa. There is some, so there's not a base that's growing that African-American population. And African-American fertility is now below replacement. Not way below, like, like non-Hispanic whites, but below replacement. So, uh, and, of course, what's driving the the uh, Asian population is primarily immigration. So I think we're going to see that change. I think, um, you know, one of the things to understand when you look at immigration, for example, I'll, I'll get people ask this question, they'll say, well, you know, Asian immigrants are very different than Hispanic immigrants. And what they're sometimes doing and not asking what they really mean is that they say, well, Asian immigrants have higher socioeconomic characteristics, they have more education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, than do Hispanic immigrants. Well, that has a lot to do with how far you immigrate. 
okay? If you come like many Hispanic immigrants and it's a border crossing kind of thing, that takes one level of resources. But relocating from China to the U.S. isn't done quite as cheaply, okay? And so what we're getting in those other cases is people who have higher levels of education, have, a, have the socioeconomic resources to do the changes. And I think that's important because sometimes people want to say, well, why isn't X doing as well as Y? Not recognizing that they're not, they don't have the same characteristics, particularly don't have the same educational or socioeconomic characteristics. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Hi there. This was in correlation to um, higher education and population growth. Um, I feel that, I'm really short. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel that because because um, I am Hispanic. Yeah. And I'm 23 years old and I've seen it. And I know that, you know, Hispanics, um, the minority, they have, you know, like there's less money there. And so I feel like um, there's a direct correlation between um, Hispanic, you know, students coming right out of high school who don't have enough money to get into universities, who are putting off higher education, starting families, and then you get, you know, from there you get your, your population growth expanding. Whereas, you know, students who are, you know, white students coming out of high school, they're delaying putting, you know, starting families, they're delaying that because they're, you know, they're in higher education, and there's a huge gap between, um, I mean, you know, with you know, in reference yeah, know. to your, yeah. your charts and everything, um, there's a huge gap in how much, um, uh, like, white students coming into universities, like, the money that they have within their families, and then Hispanic families, for example, and, um, you know, African-American yeah. families that don't have that money and are delaying college because they don't have that money, so then they're starting families. So my question is, um, do you have any ideas or are there any like solutions as to how we can put more money into low socioeconomic you know, neighborhoods and counties because if we put the money into them, then they would you know, feel more confident in going into education, delaying those families. Population growth would, if not reduce, at least stabilize. And, I mean, it's definitely not going to come within the families themselves because if they're low socioeconomic families, it's not going to come within mom and dad. It's going to come from other things such as financial aid and grants, which, you know, personally I'm involved in. I'm taking financial aid. And so I was wondering if you had any solutions or ideas for that. I don't have, I'm not sure I have any solutions, but I will <laughs> comment on a couple of things that you say. One is there's no doubt that in many cases delayed education means you don't go beyond whatever your educational level is. That data shows that for years, shows it for all racial and ethnic groups. There's an interesting thing, I didn't present a chart today, but the interesting thing, if you look from 90 to 2010, we made some closure between, uh, in case we're talking, since we're talking about Hispanics, between Hispanics and non-Hispanic whites in terms of graduation from high school we actually had a slight widening of the gap at the college level. Now, what might be some of the reasons for that? Well, uh, public schools are basically free. Okay? Colleges and universities aren't free. Uh, and when you look at least at the anecdotal literature, what it suggests is that uh, people are doing just what you say. That is, they get through high school, they'd like to go to college, but they'll say, well, we'll save up money and so forth and so on. And then life happens, okay? Uh, and after a while, you get de the delays that become uh, simply uh, not pursuing their educational dreams. So uh, I think, frankly, from when we looked at this data, uh, that we need to really consider how much financial aid we're giving and really start looking at the trade-offs. And that is, if you look at the income differentials, how much you make when you have a college degree versus how much you make when you have a high school degree, et cetera, uh, we could probably do more on financial aid and make it a very good investment uh, for the state of Texas, not just for the people involved themselves, which is certainly it would make their life terribly different if they finished college. But I think we need to look at that and say, if we put X amount into financial aid, what would be the return? Uh, and I think the data suggests that at least some increase in that would, would create a financial return that would more than compensate over time uh, for the amount of money that's spent. Um, you said there's been change in the Valley, um, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. What's happened in the yeah. last decade 
for, for the improvements in the valley? Well, I'm, I'm not necessarily the expert on why they're there, but did some work about a year ago, did a fairly extensive amount of slides and data analysis. Uh, and when you start looking at per capita incomes, you start looking at some places in poverty rates, you're seeing increased incomes, you're seeing in, in, in uh, decreases in some areas of poverty, you're seeing increases in, in investments, you're seeing increases in home ownership. Uh, you're seeing, in fact, I remember well that I was making up these slides, getting ready to go down to present to a group in McAllen, and I've looked at these data for decades. And I kept going back to the guy that I was working with. I said, check these data because I said, the, you know, frankly, the Valley doesn't usually show these kind of improvements. But the data from 2000 to 2010 definitely show if they're accurate, and I have no reason to say that they aren't, that there were socioeconomic improvements uh, in the valley. That doesn't mean that it's like the suburbs of Houston or Dallas, but it does mean that there has been, it looks to be that, during that decade, uh, positive economic changes. Yes. Thank you for your really interesting presentation. Thanks. Just a quick point of information and then a quick question. Uh -huh. uh, the first question was about political participation among Hispanic yeah. Texans. The Annette Strauss Institute for Civic Life, which I direct, yeah. which is here at UT Austin, released a report in June called the Texas Civic Health Index. It's available as a free yeah. download. And um, what we found was that, uh, as you were saying, the drop-off among Hispanic Texans, and we're only here talking about those yeah. who are legally eligible yeah, to yeah. vote, the drop-off in participation compared to other groups is quite dramatic. Mm -hmm. um, then quickly to my question, which is somewhat unrelated. Okay. I remember uh, learning from a demographer many years ago that the single biggest predictor of uh, fertility rates is female education. And I'm wondering yeah. if that's true, if you could comment yeah, on it's, that. Yeah, it's, it's still a very strong predictor of, of, uh, uh, of fertility for, for lots of reasons. And, and, uh, uh, but yes, it remains a very good predictor of fertility is, is the education uh, of, in a couple, the education of the, of the female. Uh, Hispanics, like all immigrant groups, I believe, uh, it, uh, the families tend to evolve over the generations so that at the beginning they speak nothing but Spanish, even if they speak some English on the side maybe, but still they, they, their predominant, uh, almost exclusive language is Spanish. Then at some point, you get into Spanglish, or half English, half Spanish. And finally, you get to the point where they don't speak Spanish at all. And at that point, uh, very few, I believe, still self-identify as Hispanics. Uh, they're assimilated, pretty much, uh, speaking nothing but English. I'm wondering if you have statistics on how many uh, people of Hispanic descent will not be speaking Spanish by 2050, say. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't I haven't seen that. Those data may exist. I haven't worked with them. But I will uh, tell you that there's pretty good evidence looking at this across, you know, groups across time period that you're very right in the sense that if you look at immigrants, whether you talk about Hispanics or, or Irish or Germans, etc., the first generation speaks primarily the language of the country from which they came. The second generation speaks both because they're trying to get along in the new culture. They're talking to parents who primarily uh, speak the old language. And the third speaks uh, primarily the language in the country in which they're located. In fact, I'll give you a very anecdotal. I was once speaking to an Hispanic chamber uh, and in a prominent city. We won't go into whoever it was, but... Uh, which was common, they kind of put the speaker over and they say, go over there, sit down at that table, don't get lost. But turned out uh, that pretty soon I had 12 young men and women, all Hispanic, all uh, under 30, okay, sitting at the table. And I'm sitting there and I hear this young woman say to her friend, yeah, my grandmother jabbers at me and I don't understand a word she says. The next young lady says, just same thing with me. So being a demographer and, you know, couldn't let an opportunity like this go by, I looked at this group and I said, how many of you, uh, just demographer's question, 
Now there's 12, and they're at the Hispanic chamber. So obviously they identify with, with being Hispanic. I said, how many of you do not speak uh, uh, Spanish? Of the 12, six didn't speak Spanish. Now, this is a city where there's been Hispanic populations for a lot longer periods of time, but that process has worked with every immigrant group and every group over time. So what, what you see is I think that that's, that's a very common, common pattern. Uh, and, but I don't think it's necessarily that they stop identifying being Hispanic. Uh, there may, to some extent, they may be multinational. Uh, but these young men and women certainly still wouldn't have been at the Hispanic Chamber if they didn't identify being Spanish. Uh, as Spanish. a corollary to that, you've got more and more white people picking up Spanish yeah. and picking up Spanglish, and you've got them north of the border and south of the border. Uh, I'm just wondering if you have any speculations on what's going to become of Spanglish. Uh, no, I can't say. I'm not a language uh, expert. Uh, I'm not the timekeeper. Are we getting into somebody else's? Okay, we're out of time. Okay. Thank you very much.